You know, sometimes I'll walk up on the stage and I will say things that I didn't plan to say, didn't anticipate saying, and those land a lot of different ways. Sometimes that's dangerous. But um, if you were here last week in this service, at the 1130 service, I got up at the end of the service um, and I made a statement. Um, and most of you are like, I don't even remember what he's talking about. But I made the statement at the very end. I said, go Texans. And then I said, it's not how you start, but it's how you finish. And some of you left and you thought, man, it's going to be okay. Wes has hope. He believes in the Texans. Some of you left and thought Wes has lost his mind. Listen, I wasn't talking about what you thought I was talking about. It is how you finish. I don't have any hope in the Texans this year. They don't have a chance at making the playoffs. Maybe I'm wrong, but here's what, I'm, here's what I think is happening. You see, some of you are thinking even right now, I'm talking about the Texans, you're like, oh, poor Texans fans, because you're a Cowboys fan. But you guys are actually competing for the same thing. You're trying to finish for the same thing, and that is the number one draft pick in the 2021 NFL draft, because the worst team in the NFL gets the number one pick. And I want us to think about that, because here's what the number one pick does for an NFL franchise. It gives a team an opportunity to select someone to be number one that they can begin to build a franchise around. And then if they're the Texans and they draft them, they trade those players away down the road to some other team and never really get to build the franchise up. And I'm, I'm kind of kidding there. But think about some of these names. Think about some of these first round draft picks over the years. Incredibly successful with their talent. OJ Simpson. Remember, I'm just talking football. Chuck Bednarik. Terry Bradshaw, Earl Campbell, Peyton Manning, Troy Aikman, Deshaun Watson, the, the verdict is still out, but he's trending in the right direction. We'll see if they can put anything around him. Those are, those are successful draft picks. And here's what's happened. People, back in the day, they were selected and people invested a lot of money, a lot of time and energy into these players. And the result was, the return on that was, a lot of success on the football field, celebrations, a lot of wins, a lot of championships, a lot of ticket sales. Everybody felt really good about that investment. Let me read you another list of names. And this is no judgment on these people. They're people just like you and me. They just happen to be really good football players when they were in college. Johnny Manziel. That one hurts a little bit more than the others do for me. Ryan Leaf. Brian Bosworth. Andre Ware, incredible college athletes, drafted in the first round of the NFL draft, but they didn't really come through with the return on that investment. So there were some frustrations. They didn't meet expectations. The franchise didn't meet expectations. So people started to kind of get frustrated with that. Now that's NFL football, but we can understand that because we've all made an investment in some things. We've invested our time, we've invested energy, emotion, resources, money, into certain things with mixed results. You've had some things come back with great return and other things come back with not so great a return. Think about it. Maybe it was financial. I mean, has anybody had a low return on a financial investment you really believed in? You don't have to raise your hand, but think about it. You probably have, many of us have. Maybe it was a relationship investment. Don't point, it gets awkward. But it didn't turn out the way you thought it was going to turn out. You chose something, you chose someone, you chose a certain direction, and the expectations were never really met, and it left you in a place where you were frustrated. Well, I want us to think specifically about what are some of the things that we choose to be the number one thing in our life, the ultimate 
thing in our life. The reason I want us to think about that is because that's what worship is. We talk about this word worship a lot in church. And worship is so much more than just a song. It's so much more than just a, a collection of songs and a worship service like this. It's so much more than an emotional, spiritual moment that you have while you're driving down 290 at a slow rate of speed because traffic is back, listening to KSBJ. It's so much more than that. Worship is ultimately this. Worship is when you and I take something, someone, something in our life, and we place it in the ultimate place in our life. It's number one. And when we place it at number one, everything else in our life becomes subject to whatever that thing is. It begins to dictate some things in our lives, and it leaves us in a lot of different places. Worship is lifting something higher in our life than anything else in our life. And the reason I want us to understand that is I want us to look at a story that's a familiar story. If you've been in church at all, you've probably heard the story about the, the confrontation on Mount Carmel in the Old Testament. If you've never been in church and this is all new, and you're kind of checking this out, it's an incredible story. And you might be thinking, man, the Bible's kind of boring. This story's not boring. So let's pick it up with that idea of worship. Let's, let's pick up the story in 1 Kings chapter 18. If you're watching online, even if you're in the room, you can find the sermon notes. You can go to cof.church. You can find the sermon notes there. You can find these passages there. You can add notes to that if you'd like. Let's pick up the story. It says in verse 17, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is this you, the cause of disaster to Israel? There's tension, okay? There's some conflict here. Ahab is frustrated with Elijah. Elijah's frustrated with Ahab. There's a confrontation that's about to go down. A showdown is about to happen. Verse 18, it says, he said, I have not brought disaster to you, to Israel, but you and your father's house have because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the bales. Elijah is saying, hey, listen, I'm not the source for your trouble. And have you ever been there where you've kind of felt some tension, some frustration, some missed expectations, and you start looking for the source of that? And you're like, somebody is responsible for this. That's what Ahab's doing. He's the king of Israel. He's married to uh, Jezebel, his wife, and she is not um, loyal to God. She's actually a worshiper, worshiper of Baal. And so he has found himself in a place where he knows about God. He has an understanding about God, the God of Israel, but he's not all in. He's not fully committed. And the result of that is they're struggling. And Elijah is calling this out. He says, hey, listen, I know you think I'm the cause for your trouble, but I'm not the cause. In fact, the cause is you've kind of abandoned the commandments. He's saying you've, you've kind of turned your back on God. You're not really in and you're not really out. So he continues on. He says in verse 19, now then, Send orders and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Now, that's a really large table for those of you guys who are kind of wrapping your mind around that. Elijah says, hey, listen, it's time to figure this out. It's time to make a decision. It's time to figure out what is going on. The people of Israel find themselves in a place in history where they're experiencing famine, there's no rain, their crops are dying, their livestock are struggling. This is not a good time. There's a lot of conflict, there's a lot of tension, their expectations are not being met in the culture that they find themselves in. I think we can relate to that in a place where maybe things aren't going the way we thought they were going to go. Missed expectations. But Elijah has an interesting direction he takes this. He wants us to see something. He wants us to recognize something. Today, we have to settle this. Not what's happened in this story, but we have to settle something for ourselves today. And I think we see this in the story. We've got to make 
a decision. Now, we can't dismiss this as primitive. Look what it says in verse 20. So Ahab sent orders among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Then Elijah approached all the people and said, how long are you going to struggle with two choices? It's interesting when he says struggle because that word literally, uh, literally interpreted from the original Hebrew actually means to limp, to be able to, to, to not walk well, to, to have some sort of obstruction that's keeping someone from walking the way they're supposed to walk. They're limping, they're struggling through life. He's saying, how long are you going to struggle with the two choices? He's calling them out. And then he says this, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Notice how they respond. But the people did not answer him so much as a word. The people know the struggle. I mean, he pointed at the struggle. He says, you are struggling. You are limping. But he's saying, you don't have to limp like this anymore. He says, if God is God, then worship him. But if Baal, then worship him. He's saying, get off the fence. Go all in. Go big or go home. But choose a side. Pick a side. Stop wavering between these two decisions. And this might come across as a little bit ridiculous or a little bit primitive to us, but we have a tendency to do the same things because every single one of us in this room worships something. And you might push back on me and say, Wes, I'm not religious. I don't worship. But you do. I mean, think about it. Let me, let me, let me, let me say it this way. Think about what is the thing that's most important to you? What is the thing that you can't live without? Like if somebody was to take that from you, you would be devastated and unable to live any longer. What is it that you run to to find life, to find purpose, to find meaning? What is that? Everything you do is circled around this one thing, or maybe it's several things. But that's what worship is. That's what we do. And here's what we know. As you begin to worship God, God does some things for us. You see this throughout Scripture. Some of you have experienced this in your own life. As we worship God, he begins to define who we are. He gives us a new identity. As we worship God, he defends our peace because we need some peace in the chaos of this world. As we worship God, he delights our soul because not everything in this world makes us happy. As we worship God, he directs our steps. He gives us purposes. He gives us direction for our life. But the same is true when we worship any idol. Anything that we put in that top place in our life as ultimate, will define who you are, defend your peace. You'll look to that to, de- to delight your soul and to direct your steps. And so it's important for us to pay attention. Elijah is saying, how long will you struggle? It's not necessary. How long will you struggle? And then he says, hey, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna have a showdown. I'm gonna put an altar over here. I'm gonna put an altar over here. We're gonna put some stones on it. We're gonna take the oxen. We're gonna cut the oxen up, put the oxen on the altars. And then look what he says. He says, then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. So he's setting up the challenges, and he has set up everything that needs to happen. He says, hey, listen, you set up yours for your gods, I'll set up mine for God, and whichever God brings fire down from heaven, then he is God. They are God. So he's saying, these are the qualifications, and all the people replied, that is a good idea. So they're hopeful. You see, they've got expectations. They believe that something is going to happen. And then look what happens. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose the one ox for yourselves and prepare it first. 
Notice he says one. Don't cheat. Don't, you make sure we're clear. Since there are many of you, you sense a little bit of sarcasm, which I can appreciate, a little holy sarcasm coming from Elijah. He says, and call on the name of your God, but put, to fire, but put no fire under the ox. Then they took the ox, which was given them, and they prepared it. And, and they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon for three hours. They're worshiping Baal. Oh, Baal, answer us. You sense desperation. Baal, where are you? For three hours, Baal, come on, come through. I have great expectations. You can do this. I believe in you, dancing, worshiping. But there was no voice. No one answered. And they limped around the altar which they had made. Bizarre story. A story of disappointment, of some hopelessness, some frustration. Because what they worshiped, was not coming through and meeting the expectations they had for the one that they worshiped. They believed it was going to provide something that it couldn't. And we find ourselves in the same place sometimes. Look at verse 27. Let's go to verse 27. And at noon, Elijah ridiculed them and said, I mean, you just picture the scene. For three hours, they've been worshiping around this altar. Nothing has happened. Elijah is chilling in a beach chair. He's got his tropical drink in hand, his sunglasses on. He's watching this spectacle take place. He says, he ridiculed them and said, hey, maybe try this. This is more of that sarcasm, I think, coming out from Elijah. He's like, hey, maybe you should try this. Call out a little louder. Maybe you need to shout a little bit louder. Maybe you're not getting his attention since he is a God. Undoubtedly, he is attending to business. Now, the NASB version, which is what I'm teaching from this morning, cleans this up a little bit. But this passage in the literal sense is meaning maybe he is relieving himself. So Elijah, chilling in his chair, watching this all take place, looks at these prophets and he says, hey guys, listen, maybe he's busy right now, relieving himself. In other words, maybe he's in the bathroom, the fan is on, he's updating his Facebook status. He's busy. Or maybe, maybe it's not that. Maybe he's on his way and he got stuck in traffic. Or maybe he's on another journey and he's gonna be here in a little bit. Perhaps he's even asleep. I mean, maybe he needs to rest and he will awaken. So they cried out with a loud voice. They thought, he's right. So they, they keep worshiping, cutting themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed out on them. When midday was passed, they raved until the time of the offerings of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice no one answered, and no one paid attention. Difficult scene, a frustrating scene. They're worshiping something that is unable to do what they need it to do, failing to experience the presence and the power and the life that only comes from their heavenly father. And Elijah's just sitting back watching. Look what happens next. Then Elijah said to all the people, hey, come forward to me. He gets up from his chair, puts his drink down. He's like, hey guys, come here. I'm sure they're devastated, they're frustrated. They're not real sure what Elijah's about to do to him. He says, so all the people came forward to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. I think we have to pause and understand what's happening right there. Because some of us have taken steps in our lives where we've decided to place our worship on something that was never supposed to be worshiped. And it's led us down a path where we're frustrated, we're exhausted, we're destroying even ourselves, just like the people in the story. 
And then we begin to think there's no way, there's no way I could ever experience the power, the presence of God in my life ever again. The struggle is too real, it's too far gone. Notice what Elijah does, he begins to repair the altar. It's a picture of God's grace. It's a picture of his mercy and his forgiveness for us. If you still have breath in your lungs, then there's still time for restoration to take place, for redemption to happen in your story. Look what he says. Look what it says after that in verse 33. It says, then he laid out the wood and he cut the ox in pieces and placed it on the wood. And then he said, don't, don't, don't miss this. And then he said, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Remember, we're in the middle of a three-year drought. It hasn't rained. They hadn't even had a heavy dew in three years. And he says, hey, take four large jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. That doesn't make sense. Fire and wood don't go, or fire and water don't go together. But notice he says, and do it a second time. Hey guys, let's not just do it once, let's do it twice. It's like, wow, okay. Then he said, do it a third time. So they did it a third time. The water flowed around the altar and he also filled the trench with the water. Kind of a bizarre scene. Why would he do this? Why would he put all of this water on the altar? Then look what happens. Then at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet approached and said, and he calls out to God. He says, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Notice Elijah's motivation in this scenario is not recognition for himself. He's not saying, God, I want everybody to see and recognize me. He's acknowledging God as the one who he worships. God is the one who makes this possible. He's pointing people to God. It continues on and says this, Answer me, Lord, answer me so that this people may know that you, not Elijah, but that you, Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. I mean, it didn't just kind of smoke it out. It didn't just kind of spark a little bit. It completely consumed everything and it's gone, water and all. When all the people saw this, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. What an incredible story. But that story isn't just something that was supposed to happen in the past. That story could be our story today. That story is a place where we can step into because I know for a fact there are many of us, I say us, myself included, that we need to experience the power of God in our lives in a way that maybe we haven't in years and God is waiting to pour fire down from heaven. But he wants us to take some steps first because we've been placing our worship. We've been aiming our adoration in places that were never designed to be worshiped and adored. In the story, God's wanting to point us back to something. He's wanting us to remember something. He's wanting us to see Elijah was all in. He was all in. He understood that God was ultimate. We have a tendency especially when things get a little bit difficult, we start feeling a little bit of tension, the struggle is real. We find ourselves not struggling, but completely stuck sometimes, limping through life because we've aimed our worship somewhere that we never should have aimed it. In our current climate, in our current culture, everything's shifting and shaking and there's voices telling us all these different things and it's so easy that we can begin to look at things as idols. We're looking to these things to defend our peace, to define who we are, to delight our souls, and to direct our paths. 
For some, we look towards money. We have a tendency just to go to money. We look to money to bring our peace. We look to money to define who we are and to give us worth and value for ourselves. We look to money to bring joy and happiness. We look to money to give us purpose. Maybe it's self-image. We're so obsessed with what people think about us. So we're constantly working to elevate ourselves, looking for more popularity, for greater status, for more worth and recognition from the people around us. Maybe it's politics. And I believe in good government, but I think it's dangerous when we begin to raise it to a place it was never supposed to be, to this place of worship. We begin to look to politics and the political climate to bring peace. We allow it to direct our steps, and it's dangerous. And this is where the people of Israel find themselves. They pushed out God, and they began to worship Baal idols and the Asherah idols. They'd experienced famine for three years, no rain but no fire, no presence, no power from God. And Elijah, whose name means my God is Yahweh, shows up on the scene and he points their worship back to God. And in this moment, they experience the power of God. And I think there's something that we need to experience in that. So we need to do three quick things. If you want to experience God's power in the struggle, the first step is simply this. This is what Elijah does. You gotta call out the idols We've got to call them out. We've got to recognize, listen, there's bad news today. And sometimes bad news is important for us to hear because it helps us recognize what's happening in our lives when it's happening so slow that we don't even realize it's happening. There's bad news today. And the bad news is that by directing our worship and elevating things to a place they were never supposed to be elevated in our life, it's bringing destruction and death into our life. You know, I don't enjoy going to the dermatologist. And some of you are probably like that. I have to visit the dermatologist because my, my skin and the sun are in an abusive relationship, and so it's just not good. But I go into the dermatologist's office, and I don't know if you've ever had to do this, but especially as a guy, it's just weird because my dermatologist is a female, and so I go in, and they hand you this robe. And the nurse leaves. She goes, I need you to take everything off and just put this robe on. The doctor will be in in just a minute. And it's like, oh, are you serious? <laughs> Vulnerable, uncomfortable, nervous. Then the doctor walks in and she's always super excited. Like she's about to slice and dice you. And she's like, oh, good to see you today. And you're sitting there and then she starts to kind of get a Sharpie out and she's like circling spots on your body and she's looking everywhere, like like everywhere, (laughs) super uncomfortable. And then she gets out the shots, the numbing mechanisms. Then she gets out the things that start cutting your flesh. And then there's wounds and there's blood. It's messy, it's uncomfortable, it's painful. I think it's important for us to think about that in our lives. Because there's some things in our lives that are bringing death. And we're looking to those things that are bringing death to try to find life. And it's destroying us. Because our worship is heading in the wrong direction. We're looking at the wrong things with our worship. I've wrestled with this in my own life. There are times I have a tendency to to begin to elevate my own self-worth, my own self-image. I don't know where it comes from. I don't know why I wrestle with it. I don't know if it has something to do with the way that I grew up. And I grew up in a small town where um, this pasty pale white boy was actually the minority in the community I grew up in with great people and nobody ever mistreated me. But I had this weird insecurity in my head always believing that I wasn't good enough, that I didn't measure up, that I wasn't okay, wishing that I was different. So now I was an adult, there's times where I lay my head down and I'm thinking about what am I gonna do the next day to accomplish something of worth so that I can feel better about myself. 
I'm looking to self-image to define who I am, to bring peace in my life, to bring joy in my life, to direct my steps and bring purpose, and it's dangerous. I wonder what it would look like for us to be honest with ourselves today because we're allowing some things to direct our steps that are leading us to a place of death and destruction. We're struggling, we're limping. Maybe today we would confess and call them out. Would you be that brave to call out the idols in your life? But it's not enough just to call out the idols. You see, Elijah calls out the idols. He calls out the idols of Baal and Asherah. So it's not enough for us just to recognize the idols today, but we also need to challenge the results. What would it look like to challenge the results? Not in Michigan, not in Pennsylvania, not in Georgia, North Carolina, Arizona, Nevada. But what would it look like to challenge the results? To take a serious, careful look at the idols in our life, but then to ask the question, what has this truly done for me? What are the results of me running after this with everything that I am? I mean, think about the money. It forces us to ask the question, if God is God, then worship him. If money is God, then worship money. But consider the impact, consider the results. Does it bring you more peace in your life? When you lay your head down at night, are you able to fall asleep easily? Not worried about the pursuit of tomorrow to raise the number in that bank account? Is it bringing more purpose and direction, satisfaction in your life? Maybe it's not money for you, but maybe it is self-image like I talked about a second ago. Is it making you a kinder person? Are you someone who loves people more or actually beginning to love people less because you're so focused on yourself? It's destroying the relationships around you. Maybe it is your political stances, your political voice, You've got to ask the questions. Has it made you more compassionate? Has it made you more gracious? Has it made your friend circle larger or smaller? And if it's made it larger, you've got to ask the question, is the circle larger with people that are different opinions than mine? Or is it only people who think the way I think, believe the way that I believe, and do what I think everybody should do? Because when we find ourselves in that circle, we find ourselves in a vacuum. And then when someone challenges what we think, because we've claimed our identity in it, we find our peace in it, and it brings joy to our soul when somebody agrees with us, and it directs everything that we do. When somebody comes against us, we become hostile because they've offended who we are. And listen, all of these things are good. Believe what you believe politically. Care about your self-image. Find financial security. They're all good things. It's okay to love those things, but they make terrible gods. And so we can't just call them out, but we've got to challenge the results. We've got to ask the question, what is this doing for me? Because when I consider God and I think about what is God doing for me, I begin to reflect back on the impact God is having in my life. And as I think about that, I remember that he has rewritten my story. When I was 16 years old, he opened my eyes to who he was and he opened my eyes to the grace and their forgiveness and the plans that he wanted to have in my life. And I didn't fully understand all of it on that day, but over the years, he's been shaping and showing me things. Even when I fall on my face almost every single day, he is good. And he doesn't remind me of my past, he reminds me of his goodness. He reminds me of his love and his plans and his purposes for me that's ahead for me. I don't have everything that's good in my life, but he's given me some good things. 
I'm thankful for my family. I'm thankful for my wife. I'm thankful for some of the things that he's allowed me to participate in. It's not all good, but there's enough good that I can look to God and say, God is worthy of my worship. We've got to bring on the showdown to challenge the results and ask the questions. Your life is worth it. And as we call out the idols and we challenge the results, the last thing we do is we've got to bring a sacrifice. You heard me say this a minute ago. Worship is not some song. It's not just a moment where we spend together raising our voices and singing in this place. Worship is not something on the agenda in our week. Worship is the agenda. How do we worship? The only one worthy of worship? Bring a sacrifice. I mean, think about this. Think about this story. Think about what's going on. In verse 30, if you go back and look at that, Elijah says, hey, bring 12 jars of water. It hasn't rained for three years. Water was scarce. It was something you would hold on to tightly because it was so valuable. And he looks at them and he says, hey, listen, let's, let's take what's most precious and let's offer it to God. And as we offer it to God, look out, watch out, because then we're going to experience the presence and the power of God. Elijah wants them to see that, and I think it's what he wants us to see today. In order to experience God's power, we have to be willing to let go of something that's most precious. You know, this is why I tithe. This is why I give the first 10% of my income, because I have a tendency to elevate money to a place it was never designed to be in my life, and it becomes an idol for me. And so by taking something precious that I wanna hold tightly to, and I begin to say, you know what? This is valuable to me, but God, you're, you're higher. And by giving my tithe and bringing an offering, I'm saying, I will not worship money. I will worship God because he is better. He has something better for me. It's why people volunteer. It's why I volunteered even in college and continue to get to be a part of things where life change is happening. But God wants to use us. He wants us to, to give up some of our time to serve him and to serve other people. You can do that even here at Community of Faith. And this isn't a desperate plea, but it's a plea of desperation for you because I want you to experience the presence and the power of God in your life because you don't have to struggle anymore with what you're struggling with. How long will you limp when you don't have to limp anymore? You'll come to a season at Community of Faith that is unique about this place. And I think it's the perfect season for us to experience the power of God in our struggles. Laura talked about this last week. We talked about best gift season and several weeks ago we were talking about, I was like, man, are we, are we a little bit tone deaf to what's going on around us by asking people to contribute and to be generous to something that God's doing all around the world? Because this is when everybody, myself included, wants to hold on a little bit tighter. But what would it look like as a church for us to loosen the grip of what we're holding on to so tightly? to let go of some things that we felt are so precious so that we can experience the work of God in our lives and to contribute to this best gift offering. I mean, it's an offering that goes above and beyond the tithe and you're like, man, that's crazy. I mean, that might even be offensive to you. It's making you mad right now that I'm even talking about money. I understand that. I've been there. I've also seen God's faithfulness in my obedience. And he wants to be the same God for you that he is for me and for everybody else in this room. So what I want us to do today is I want us to consider that. What is it for you? What is it that's most precious? What is it that's ultimate? What is it that you're allowing to define you, 
to defend your peace, to delight your soul and direct your steps. And if it's anything other than God, would you be willing to make God number one? So many of you have done that. You've let go of something so precious and you've contributed to best gift over the years. And like in the story we read, it's not just you that's experienced the presence and the power of God just in your life, in your obedience to sacrifice, but people around us. God has used your sacrifice to make an impact in the world. He does that. When we're generous, when we're obedient, he doesn't just work in us. It's not just selfish about us. He makes himself known in us and through us. And so I want us to watch this video as the band comes back up about some of the impact. It's about some of the life change that is happening all around the world, specifically in the area of education. Specifically this morning, the impact that is happening right across the highway at Roberts Road Elementary because of your generosity, serving the community, loving the children in this community. Happening all the way across the world with Changing Destiny Project as they're rescuing girls from a life that's tragic and providing an education for them. God's working and he's working as you worship. Let's watch this and let's worship as we watch this. God, we love you. We thank you for choosing to continue to work in us. I'm grateful that your power is still moving in our lives. Continue to do that in the next few minutes. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated for just a moment. Will you pray with me? And before we pray, will you just kind of think about this? You know, the only reason God is calling you out today to walk away from some other gods is because he is God and he has something better for us. So consider, what is it that you're holding on so tightly to? Would you be willing to let go of that a little bit? Because where there is no sacrifice, there is no fire. Where there's no sacrifice, we fail to experience God's power in our life. So what's number one? That's the question for the day. What's number one? Maybe you need to ask your spouse. Maybe you need some help figuring that out. You need to ask your friends. Maybe you need to look at your bank account to help you figure that out. Maybe it's your calendar that shows you more of what's number one in your life. But let's pray right now just a prayer of confession and pray that we would be able to put whatever that is that's number one that's not God and put it behind God today. Whatever it is. God, we love you. We trust you. We thank you for the time that we've had together in this place today. I pray that as we wrestle with that question of what's number one, would you do something unique, do something supernatural in us? Would we experience your power in our lives today as we surrender the things that we're holding on to so tightly? I pray that what's happened here today would not stay here. It would go out and it would uh, impact our lives. It would impact the world around us. We love you. We trust you. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.